Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Vincent Mosco. Great to have you with us, Vinny. And I wanted to start by taking us back, 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 I guess more than 20 years, to a couple of events. One, uh, our being both present at a meeting of the Union for Democratic Communication in St. Louis, where I think you were giving a keynote, and something that you talked about then that had a big impact on me that also appeared in your wonderful book from 2004, The Digital Sublime, which I still think of as the exemplar of how to combine political economy with cultural studies rather than creating some sort of bifurcation between them. And in that talk and also in that book, You talk about the old Radio Row in downtown Manhattan. And that's important for me because I worked for many years in radio. But also it's important for you in terms of family history. And it's important in terms of its displacement and what that meant for the history of manufacturing communications devices. And ultimately, ultimately for the tragedies that emerged on September 11th, 2001. So I wondered if you might take us back, 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 as they say in baseball, to Radio Row. Well, first off, thank you for having me on the podcast, uh, Toby. Um, Radio Row was uh, a significant, arguably one of the most significant missed opportunities for New York City. Um, I had a personal interest in it in, in that I grew up near Radio Row in uh, lower Manhattan in the old uh, Italian Chinese uh, neighborhood. And so when I was young, my dad would take my brother and I on walks uh, down through Radio Row and on to um, the the South Street and uh, uh, ferry dock uh, for Sunday stroll. And uh, my dad had been a, a radio operator in World War II and had uh, was something of a, a tinkerer who uh, enjoyed new technologies. We were the first family on the block to get a television, for example. Um, and uh, Radio Row was, uh, I should locate it, it was the site uh, that ultimately became the World Trade Center. Radio Row was demolished to permit the development of the towers. Now, I suggest that it was a a great missed opportunity uh, because uh, the area was made up of uh, electronic shops where hobbyists, amateurs, and some professionals would gather to talk about developments in the technology, etc. It was it, sometimes and it may be an exaggeration, but I, I liken uh, some of the shops on Radio Row to New York City's version of Steve Jobs' garage and that of others who developed uh, computer technologies. Um, and in fact, it, it's uh, not stretching it too much to say that there was great potential there to develop new waves of technology. It was a concentration not only of retail shops, but of the brains uh, behind them. Uh, Now, Radio Row and its demolition embodies broadly um, the political economy of New York City that one can extend to a general understanding of political economy. Uh, At the time, if I may, New York state and city were run by uh, essentially the the Rockefeller brothers and their appointee, Robert Moses. Um, And the development of the World Trade Center was a piece of a plan that um, Lawrence Rockefeller uh, and David Rockefeller, who were major bankers uh, in New York City, and Nelson Rockefeller, who's governor of the state, hatched to launch what they felt would be the next wave of capitalist development in, in New York. That is uh, to go full-on finance capital, building these towers and associated structures to house major investment companies, banks, etc. In order to do that, 
they needed to get permission to um, demolish entire areas. In this case, uh, Radio Row was, was a prime feature. So just as the Rockefeller family had established uh, a media presence in New York by taking over the main structures in midtown Manhattan, and as they had developed uh, a greater control over the cultural life, not only of New York, but of the world, by establishing the Museum of Modern Art on the uh, upper mid uh, east side, they saw uh, the location we're talking about here, Radio Row, as the next stage in producing uh, the architecture of uh, finance capital. So Radio Row, which housed, again, uh, great uh, potential for innovation, was demolished. 33,000 jobs were lost. Uh, there were great conflicts to and in efforts to preserve the structure. Jane Jacobs was involved, uh, as were the local businesses. And the decision went all the way to the New York State Supreme Court as to the fate of uh, of the area. And ultimately, uh, the um, Rockefeller-backed uh, World Trade Center won out. And it is, in some senses, uh, ironic uh, because New York had been uh, the center for telecommunications research and development, home of AT&T, of media broadcasting uh, with RCA, and one might argue with journalism as well through the New York Times. But in this case, uh, what you can, what I viewed uh, as a failed opportunity uh, turned out to be the ultimate in tragedy uh, in uh, in the the destruction of those towers built to uh, in some ways purify capital were in essence uh, decimated. So that's kind of where I I started off on. Uh, a project to examine uh, the relationship of the political, economic, and the cultural in this one specific uh, area. And it was beautifully done, and it encapsulates, I think, quite well both the tragedy of those two events, the loss of all those jobs, and then, you know, decades later, the loss of uh, many fewer, but nevertheless thousands of lives, in a terrible crime. But it also captures something, I think, in the title of that book, which is a theme that you've looked at in other works, this notion of the digital sublime. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that, Vinny. Sure. Um, I um, primarily developed a political economic uh, vision of communication studies. Uh, but I recognized as I pursued uh, the uh, focus on uh, the major institutions, on power structures, and on capital, that it was essential to take into account the cultural dimension. Now, uh, in fact, many of the disputes between political economists and cultural studies advocates came to me as a great surprise because I was trained as a sociologist. And sociologists in essence, incorporate uh, the institutional and the culture, uh, power structures embodied uh, in corporations and governments, as well as that which uh, uh, gives meaning to individual and group life. So it is it is integral to sociology that we combine uh, power and culture. And so having completed uh, the first edition of the political economy of communication, in which I argued in the last chapter that it was essential for political economy to build a bridge to other trans disciplines, as I call them, uh, I took it on myself to uh, essentially make that move, to uh, uh, construct that bridge and walk across it to the more cultural realm. And that's where uh, I developed the concept of the digital sublime. Uh, the sublime has a long history, a 2000 or so year history in uh, mainly Western, but some Eastern thought. And uh, I 
had built uh, my understanding of the digital sublime on the work of people like Leo Marx and David Nye, who understood the sublime as a sense of transcendence, that is a, a way of dealing <clears throat> with uh, the banality of everyday life by de developing visions that would deepen and extend it and provide a richer meaning to life. Uh, it began um, the concept uh, applied originally mainly to the religious spiritual experience. Uh, Nye then extended that to our understanding of of uh, uh, of nature and the environment, so that uh, an uh, an example of the sublime is the vision of uh, of the Grand Canyon, for example. Those extraordinary experiences that, for example, uh, the art school we know as the Hudson River uh, group developed to, in essence, place uh, humans in an environment that was so awesome that it would allow them to uh, overcome uh, the day-to-day uh, -day banality of life. Now, no one to that point had extended the sublime to the digital realm. And so I was determined uh, to do that. Um, that is, uh, there had been communication scholars, uh, 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 Carol Marvin, for example, who wrote when old technologies were new about how people develop visions of the telegraph uh, and of radio as uh, sublime technologies. One of my colleagues uh, here in Ottawa, Michel Martin, wrote a book called Hello Central to apply the, the kind of fantasy mythology sublime vision to the telephone. So I essentially built on this work to examine the digital world. And uh, there were many uh, exemplars for what I uh, came to see as a sort of sublime vision that both provided meaning to people. That is, uh, the computer, as it developed in the 1980s and 90s, would more broadly, as I imagined it, contribute to wider myths that uh, I described as the end of history, Francis Fukuyama's vision, uh, the end of politics, the notion that computers would lead to uh, a full administration of things rather than the power struggles that uh, have uh, many felt uh, restricted human capabilities over time. And it would also end geography by transforming uh, spatial relations. So I, I decided to examine the sort of broader sense in which the digital permitted uh, a, a sense of, uh, in essence, a new myth that would allow individuals to see themselves as part of the flow of a history-ending uh, 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 world, so that uh, this, the, the computer became more than an, ob an, an instrument of, of development and more of uh, a sense of um, the extension of human capabilities and uh, something that would offer meaning that uh, would be the equivalent of a, of a spiritual vision. Uh, and and uh, that vision of a digital sublime, which uh, hit bumps in the road, some will remember the dot-com bust of the early 2000s, uh, the collapse of finance capital in 2008 in the Great Recession, but it has sustained itself. So most recently, we find Mark Andreessen, the founder of uh, the website, uh, uh, the, 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 the software that gave us the web, that is uh, Netscape, uh, producing what he calls the Optimist Manifesto that is now making the rounds uh, among the uh, computer literati uh, uh, who who see uh, 
much of the negativity around the existential crises we face as eventually uh, being uh, uh, addressed through the new technology, whether it's artificial intelligence, the metaverse, or what have you, um, the digital sublime becomes the way to sustain hope and optimism among those who who fear uh, climate change, uh, the potential for nuclear war, uh, the potential for global pandemics. Uh, Technology will save us. That, in essence, becomes the vision of the digital sublime. And I guess one of the extraordinary qualities in marketing terms, too, of a lot of the relevant devices for citizen, consumers, customers, whatever we might call them, workers, is the ability to combine the awesome power of computing as it becomes both smaller physically and greater in terms of its reach with a notion of beauty, of appeal. Yes. And of daring. And so what you get, which is unusual in philosophical aesthetics, is the capacity to combine the awesome, the infinite, the the overpowering with the adorable, the cute, the darling. Yes. The cell phone and the way that it gets marketed with its different appurtenances is a great example of that. Uh, You mentioned, Vinny, The Political Economy of Communication, a book that first came out, I think, in mid-1990s and a revised edition in 2009. And it's, I think, a standard work for many people. It's been translated several times, very valuable too. My question for you relates, though, to your mentioning being in Ottawa, as I think you are now, for Mm -hmm. uh, the early part of your career, so your study, your growing up, your studies, and some work you did with government entities as well as other bodies, you were based in the US, but the majority of your professional career as a scholar and author and activist has been spent in Canada. For Mm -hmm. those listeners who don't know necessarily a great deal about the Canadian tradition, although many will, because there are listeners from all sorts of different parts of the world, I wonder if you could spell out for us the extent to which the Canadian communications tradition in both policy and scholarly terms, might have had an influence on your thinking? Well, um, yes, uh, it, it is uh, interesting that uh, this uh, New Yorker ended up uh, here in the capital of, of Canada. <clears throat> I, <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't intend that um, at the start of, of my career. I expected uh, to uh, to work in the United States and most fundamentally as a scholar activist. I came of age in the 1960s, was a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, uh, and uh, spent my time in large measure outside of personal life in uh, writing and in protest. So that was sort of the, the core of who I, uh, of how I identified myself. Now, um, in 1977, uh, I uh, accepted, uh, for a variety of reasons, a postdoc in the White House Office of Telecommunication Policy. I saw it as an opportunity to renew my life and uh, to observe firsthand uh, communication policy making in the U.S. Uh, shortly after I arrived in Washington, I met a Canadian journalist. Uh, we shared a table at an FCC meeting, of all things. Federal and, Communications Commission, the, regulate, yes, the regulator yeah. so-called of communications in the United States. Yeah. Yes, we were at a regulatory meeting and she couldn't understand the technical terms, but needed to cover the meeting for Canadian press, its major wire service, and so uh, handed me notes inquiring about terms, one thing led to another, and uh, we uh, we came together uh, on um, um, spent some time in in Washington. But as you will recall, Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980 to the presidency, and I found this deeply disturbing. 
between that time in 1984, we had our two children. We decided we didn't want to raise them in Reagan's America, and so moved to Canada. Now, the experience in Canada uh, was eye-opening for me, in part because uh, it accepted uh, a, the, the views of critics, Marxists, radicals, uh, on uh, terms that would never be accepted in the United States. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I benefited materially in that I could apply for and receive grants <clears throat> to study political economy, to write about critical issues. I could work with trade unions who were the recipients of government funds to examine the impact of technology on the workplace. And uh, I could, uh, in fact, uh, develop as a critical scholar in the Canadian setting. So instrumentally, it was quite important to me. Uh, I also was able to work with people who were immersed in Canada's social democratic tradition. So I I, uh, could join with uh, a a political party that represented social democracy in Canada and work with critical scholars uh, over a range of subjects. Uh, The Canadian government frequently hired me to produce reports. So, for example, when the U.S., was flirting with pulling out of international communications policy organizations under Reagan, Uh, the federal government in Canada hired me to produce a report on why Canada should remain a full participant in these international organizations. Uh, Trade unions were accepted at at the, uh, the table in discussions of economic policy. And so I worked with these unions to develop their own uh, communication strategies and communication policy recommendations. So I found in Canada a genuine home. Uh, Now, there had been a a strong uh, political economy tradition here in Canada, and uh, the the work of Harold Innes, for example, was an important foundational work that um, many Canadians, uh, Canadian students would uh, would read. And um, so there was this sense of um, the importance of um, Canada's uh, subjugation to the U.S. as a, a kind of a form of uh, of colonialism, Canada, in a sense, freed itself from British domination, but took on a kind of uh, corporate domination from the United States. It became a branch plant economy. And so here, um, uh, Canadians were familiar what with what it meant and uh, was beginning to uh, develop a, a, an intellectual uh, sense a, a conceptualization of those terms in uh, in the communication media world. So here I think fundamentally of the work of Dallas Smythe, who I came to be associated with in uh, in the late 1970s before I moved uh, to Canada, and uh, we uh, shared ideas and. Uh, consideration of important areas to study in Canadian thought um, and wound up working uh, together for a time in the 1980s at Temple University. So I found that both instrumentally and intellectually, Canada provide a richer home than I could find in the United States. And the scholar, journalist, activist and fellow researcher was um, someone who has remained important in your life, Dr. Catherine McKercher. Um, Yes. And together you have produced a lot of work, as well as the two children that you mentioned. Yes. Wonderful achievements, wonderful things to do together. 
Well, we, we actually worked together at, at Carleton University here in Ottawa for a number of years. And again, as an example of the difference between Canada and the United States, uh, in the year 2000, uh, the Canadian government under the leadership of uh, Prime Minister Jean Chrétien uh, developed a program, a, what's called the Canada Research Chairs Program, uh, establishing 2,000 research chairs at both the senior and junior level to uh, advance uh, Canada's uh, research profile. And so um, here I was, uh, a political economist, critic, activist, Marxist scholar, and one of Canada's most conservative universities, Queen's University, uh, offered me a research chair (laughs) that uh, had funding, reduced teaching and administrative work, enabling me to carry on in uh, the areas that were important to me. And at that point, when Kathy and I no longer worked in the same university, we decided that uh, we shared so many important intellectual interests that we embarked on a research program that lasted from 2003 to 2011 that would study the uh, impact of new technology on labor and how trade unions and worker organizations were responding uh, in their own activism through a form of what we came to call labor convergence, mm-hmm. the coming together of workers and labor organizations to respond to the corporate convergence that was becoming a key factor in that stage of monopoly capital. I, you can't take the British guy out of the British guy, Vinny. I'm having to make a cup of tea here. Oh, this, go right ahead. This is part of the artisanal uh, world of this podcast. But <laughs> a question that, that derives from what you were just sharing with us, and that is the way in which I think an argument can be made about cultural studies that it overemphasizes conflict at a sort of individual level and not a structural one. And so there is power for the individual or for certain identities, but without thinking about the collective power of corporations and states. But on the other hand, there can be an argument made against some forms of political economy, not yours, Mm -hmm in which actually there's a kind of leftist functionalism mm-hmm. where there's no hope, there's no conflict, and ironically for something founded in Marxism, there is not really an active voice of labor contesting the power of state and capital. And it seems to me that one of the things that's that characterizes that tendency is a failure to acknowledge that with various transformations of the industrial proletariat such that the idea of the white working class guy working in a factory being the motor of history no longer applies. There was a long fall, a long gasp, a long period of functionalism where people weren't engaging the emerging working classes of the global north who would be, in many cases, and always had been, but became more particularly female of colour and frequently migrant so I wondered if that's a rather long form of a quasi-question. I wonder whether you could comment on that sort of accusation of leftist functionalism and whether you you see these new working class formations being important in terms of understanding contemporary political economy uh, conjunctures. Well, I think that one of the driving forces in my work was to address both of the points you made, the kind of individualistic tendency in uh, cultural studies where agency was embodied in uh, the identity of uh, individuals or small groups of, of people. And on the other hand, to combat what you call, and I think quite accurately, a kind of leftist functionalism that in the effort to uh, explain the world uh, left out uh, key participants who uh, were in some respects uh, driving some of the changes in global capitalism. So that um, my interest in pursuing both a, a, a political economic and a culturalist perspective was to 
a rethink, as the subtitle of my 1996 book uh, asserts, to rethink and renew political economy, building on, for example, the work of sociologists like Anthony Giddens, uh, who at the time was uh, developing his conception of structuration in which we might understand uh, history as a process that brought together structure and agency. Now, uh, Giddens did so outside the context of a Marxist analysis, so there wasn't much to learn about capitalism in his vision. But nevertheless, I thought there was great value in uh, his adoption of the notion of, uh, of structured agency. Now, this, is, this would not be news to uh, social historians uh, like E.P. Thompson, whose uh, making of the English working class was built around the notion of structured agency in organized labor and resistance. Uh, unfortunately, and, and I've argued that uh, communication studies, critical communication studies, had so much on its plate in the 1960s and 70s, and so few people working at it, that uh, much of the work of scholars at the time was taken taken up with um, what uh, you might call a left functionalism, in which uh, the goal of the research was to describe the power of dominant forces, whether they be uh, uh, media corporations or uh, the state and its regulatory bodies that were captured by these corporations. Now, I, I don't know so much of whether the intention was simply to uh, uh, describe corporate power. There are other elements, and in my conversations with uh, people who wrote at the time, they understood that there was such a thing as class conflict and struggle and contradiction, but, you know, first things first, I think, was the order of the day. And that left me with an opportunity to develop a more broadly neo-Marxian vision for communication studies that took up uh, agency, class struggle, class conflict, and contradiction embodied in the very nature of capitalism. So whereas one goal was to expand the vision of agency from the individual to the broader institutional and social, correcting what I thought was a tendency in cultural studies, not entirely. I mean, I, I don't want to uh, ignore those who whose work may have been sequestered, but was there in the cultural studies field, but as well to build a foundation of political economy that was sensitive to uh, the the uh, critique of capitalism and uh, the contradictions, struggles, and oppositions within it. And my focus uh, for the first decade of uh, the 21st century was on labor and the ways in which um, labor was mobilizing worldwide uh, to uh, resist the uh, the vision, sublime we may call it, in the minds of some, that erected uh, neoliberalism as the only way to carry out uh, the uh, the global system. Picking up on what I was referring to earlier as a sense of new form of working class, I'm wondering whether over the time that you've been an activist first perhaps in opposition to the Vietnam War, but obviously connected to civil rights, whether the rise of social movements such as feminism, environmentalism, queer issues, minority questions, has had an influence on your view of these things or how you go about what you do. These movements, uh, many of which I've participated in, have had an enormous influence on my thinking. And I I made this uh, explicit in the 1996 uh, first edition of the Political Economy book, uh, recognizing the importance to a political economy of media of 
both uh, uh, the, the the civil rights and uh, um, feminist movements of the time. That is, uh, when political economists took up class and class struggle, they tended to ignore the struggles erupting, for example, within the black community. The 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 rise of a strong uh, feminist movement that contested capitalism. So it was quite strong at the time and continues to this day. If I may, my uh, uh, the final chapter of the book I've just completed, uh, a memoir uh, on critical communication, is one uh, that is, for me, a, a bit unusual uh, for an ending because it both looks backward and looks forward. And what attracted me to the looking forward portion of the conclusion of this book was uh, the the growth of interest in uh, visions of utopia that uh, we see flourishing today, primarily arising from social movements, including uh, feminism. Feminist utopian studies is an extraordinary uh, development in that field. That is uh, the response to the narrow vision of utopia that was largely uh, white and Western and in the work of Thomas More included slavery, uh, etc. Um, movements today have contributed to new visions of utopia, uh, the uh, queer utopias uh, that uh, again, uh, have arisen in response to traditional visions. Uh, visions of Afrofuturism are an extraordinary development in this area. So what I'm working on now is uh, a, a, a way to rethink utopia, to develop alternative visions that respond to the existential crises we face today global pandemics, nuclear war, climate change, um, growing social inequality in the world by uh, establishing uh, concrete utopias that draw from uh, the work of uh, artists, intellectuals, novelists, uh, who work in areas like Afrofuturism, feminism, and in queer studies. These are uh, important correctives uh, and perhaps the foundation for a new understanding of what it takes to build alternatives to the system uh, and its failures uh, today. So um, in my kind of looking forward to that ends my current book, uh, I suggest that, well, whether I'm around or not to complete a book on a new vision of utopia, I suggest ways in which scholars uh, may be able to take these ideas, hopefully, and establish uh, the kinds of visions of hope that are transcendent, but also concrete, and that we need uh, to, um, well, uh, to think about a phrase of Raymond Williams, to develop new structures of feeling that can get us uh, from here through the crisis we face to uh, a new world. Uh, I want to throw in some dystopia here, Vinny. <laughs> yes, there's lots to go around. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can't claim to be its author. But I'm thinking about the fact that if you go back to the 60s and those in a sense, glory, but one could also say inglorious days of resistance to the American war in Vietnam and various other important elements of social protest since, politics of spectacle has been occupied successfully by the left, by oppositional new social movements, as well as the new left and, in fact, the old left, mm -hmm. going right back to the Spanish Civil War here where we had all the great songs, we just happened to lose all the battles. <laughs> My anxiety, Vinny, is that just as tobacco companies provided the playbook for extractivist uh, corporate criminals of the environment, 
So a lot of the politics of spectacle pioneered by women, unions, civil rights activists, and so on, especially in the United States, but not exclusively, has been picked up effectively by the right. Mm-hmm. January 6th, 2021, and the attempt to overtake the U.S. government and the state more generally, it was an example, apart from anything else, legalistically, of a successful use of the politics of spectacle by the far right, and that this is happening again and again and again in the U.S., but also, for example, here in Spain, with mass protests by the far right against what is seen as a grab for power by the social democrats. I wonder if you could respond to that and say whether you you think I'm onto something there or no way. Well, I I think you are onto something, and it's certainly um, we have ex- certainly we've experienced those of us on the left the ways in which uh, uh, businesses through their advertising campaigns, but also political movements, of course, led by the right-wing Trump movement in the United States, have co-opted both the methods and the visions, the spectacles that became significant uh, for the left. But I would say certainly this is a contested terrain that um, nowhere, in my view, is this more evident than in the uprisings over the war in Gaza. Uh, It's as someone who's participated in demonstrations here in Ottawa and observing worldwide uprisings uh, that uh, are gathering politically to overturn uh, the uh, the assault on the people of Gaza and to create a genuine space for Palestinians to build a nation. Uh, these give me hope and lead me to understand that while the right is resurgent, the left is also mobilizing. And what the left may learn is something that old leftists, and I bridge something of the old left and new left in my experience, is that uh, spectacles are not enough, that what we need is to organize and in many cases uh, withhold our labor uh, as ways to uh, attack uh, capitalism at its uh, points and areas of tension, that um, to open contradictions. So uh, while it is just one example, uh, when I began uh, uh, with Catherine, our study of labor in the early 2000s, the media labor sector was deeply divided. There were multiple trade unions. The Screen Actors Guild and its counterpart in television were separate unions that often fought with one another. But there's an increasing recognition that if labor is to have power, as we described in our work on trade unionisms, it would have to come together. And it is remarkable to me, again, one example, how cultural labor in the United States uh, has come together to form, if not one big union, close to that. And uh, they've managed to win major victories in uh, the cultural sphere, in film, television, video, uh, across the board, essentially by saying, we will unite and we will shut you down. Now, that's more than spectacle. That's recognizing, understanding capitalism, understanding its stress points, and working on them as forcefully as possible to bring uh, those who defend uh, a system of monopoly capital to have to uh, come to terms, as it were, with labor. And I'm sensing that that is increasingly the case uh, among uh, in, in other social movements, including the, the feminists, uh, the uh, black power movement, uh, to, to use a term that was common when I was coming of age. And uh, so that uh, 
while I worry about the power of the right and their co-optation of uh, the left's strategies, I also see a resurgence of the left that gives me uh, some hope. Absolutely. Well, Prof. Moscow, we're close to the end of our conversation. So I'd like to give one more question to you. And then after I've asked my question and you've answered, give you the opportunity to add to anything that we've discussed, if there are things we haven't mentioned that you would like to put on the table. So my my last question to you is to ask you how you choose your topics, how you decide to dive into everything from Radio Row to the so-called cloud to union work. How do you well, decide this is going to be my th- next thing? Yes. It's interesting. Um, research topics are combinations of uh, the political and the fortuitous. <laughs> so uh, politically, as, as someone who uh, is active in social movements, as well as in intellectual debates, I, I, I think about um, issues that... Uh, are both um, important for our time, but also resonate with broader intellectual currents. So um, in the beginning of our, well, I I would go back to the political economy book. Um, I decided to do do it because it was on the one hand fortuitous. Uh, I was asked to write a primer on political economy that uh, was expected to be uh, a, a, in essence, regurgitation of the state of the field. Um, intellectually, however, I was uh, both interested in the problems of capitalism in what is broadly considered a post-industrial age, but I also understood that there were intellectual uh, problems that that needed to be addressed. So what was initially considered a six-month project to map the political economy of communication took me six years to write because I needed to uh, take the fortuitousness of being asked to write this book and uh, deepen it because of my political and intellectual involvements. So. Um, there is this combination of what needs to be done now. Right now, I think of the importance of raising the the issues around uh, concrete utopias as a research problem, but at the same time, uh, making sure that these resonate with broader intellectual uh, currents. So... um, Combining those two typically sends me down uh, a particular uh, path that is of importance to me. And and I wouldn't give priority to either of them. I, I wouldn't overly intellectualize this as seeing my research as some part of some grand theoretical program uh, because uh, the, 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 the availability of topics, of uh, co-researchers, uh, of uh, political needs that need that 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 require uh, addressing. Uh, a trade unionist asked me about uh, the uh, importance of smart cities for labor and uh, for local politics. That led me to uh, develop a book on uh, smart cities. And in particular, led to a final chapter, which I call the Smart City Manifesto, a set of principles that should guide people's thinking about technology-rich cities. So it was a request by a fellow activist and a uh, a recognition that uh, technology and cities were a critical issue to take on uh, today. Thank you, a wonderful answer. And just to close, are there things you'd like us to 
finish with that we've maybe not touched on or areas where you want to add something to what you've said? Well, I think it's important for um, academics and activists to um, recognize the importance of generosity in our lives uh, today. Um, I decided to uh, to write uh, a memoir about my work in this field about a year ago, and uh, I thought I have thought about this over the years. I've kept a personal journal that um, I have added to every day since a day in June 1996. Uh, it has close to a million and a half words, much of it uh, useless, I suppose, uh, but. Um, what uh, what I've thought about over the last several decades is the need to reflect on my life. But I wasn't prepared to do so until about a year ago when I came to the recognition that I had reached a point in my life where I could, in addition to describing my work and the people I have known over the years, do so with a level of generosity and understanding that... Um, allowed me to, in a sense, transcend any inclination to uh, uh, pick fights, settle scores, uh, or uh, engage in uh, critique without understanding uh, the genuine humanity of the people I have known over the years and have worked with, even those who have... Uh, resisted uh, my, the ideas and the actions that I've uh, held dear. So uh, if there is an area that I think a scholar activist, particularly in the world we live in today, where there's a genuine feeling of being battered and blasted on all sides, uh, to recognize the need to be generous with ourselves and to be generous with those uh, we care about including those uh, who may uh, oppose uh, what we believe is right. Well, Professor Vincent Moscow, thank you so much for coming into the pod and to use an expression you've just deployed a couple of times, being so generous both with the hour you've given us, but also with your immense academic and activist contribution over many decades. Thank you very much. I appreciate that.